Well, this morning we are continuing in John chapter 17, gaining wonderful insights from this prayer that Jesus prays to the Father. Uh, There is so much revelation here. I hope you're taking time just to meditate on how God is in this prayer. Everything from the things that particularly get asked, as well as the reasons that get explained as to why Jesus is asking these things. And this, this is so informative for just the life you and I are living, but the prayers that we pray. So those of you who have a, a passion and a love for prayer, so grateful for every one of you. Uh, we're always needing to look for fresh outlines for our prayers. John chapter 17. Can't beat John chapter 17 for a fresh outline for praying. So grateful for Aaron last week uh, sharing with us the word on the, the chosen people that God highlights in this prayer. So effective and so grateful for him. This week, I want to highlight particular words. The title of the message today is particular words. And I want to say that until you tell me, stop saying it. Particular words, right? There are particular words that get featured in this message. We live in a flood, an avalanche, a blizzard of words today. It is easy to start thinking that words are words, that there's so many words out there and you can lose the sense that there are particular words, but the Bible clearly stands up. Jesus clearly prays about particular words that are unique and different in their nature, in their contents than any other words that you and I will ever come in contact with. And this is how he introduces that in this prayer. John 17 verse eight Jesus speaking to the father says, I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. And he's going to pick this thought up again, expand it a little bit more, fill it in a little bit more in verse 14. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, the, your word, Lord, the word that I've been given them, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus highlights in his prayer, he does so as he speaks in other places in the New Testament, particular words. There are particular words. He makes them stick out. He highlights, he draws our attention to particular words. And he highlights that about his ministry. And then he highlights two responses. I gave them particular words. And these disciples of mine, they received those words and they believed. But then there was a second response that he quickly highlights. I gave them your words and the world hated them. So there is a receptive response to the ministry of God's word. 
And there is a hostile response. And I want to try and see if we can explain both of those today. But let me just stand on this concept that there are particular words among us that can be known that Jesus shares with his disciples. I wrote in your outline there, Jesus highlights a feature. This is a feature of his ministry to give, to share, to transfer particular words to his disciples. He stops and says that to the father. Father, I have shared your particular words. I have shared your word with them. That's, That's a highlight. He has done this. He has been faithful to do that. Now, there's something awkward about particular words. All right, so let me just establish this. If you're watching and whatever your concept of Jesus is, I don't think too many people would argue that if you visited history and you pointed to the one human being who ever existed on this planet, who was the most loving, the most caring, the most sympathetic, the most kind, the most compassionate human being who ever set foot on this earth, I I can't imagine anybody would have Jesus finishing second on that list to anyone. You might have some other people on the list, but I don't think Jesus finishes second to anyone. But if you hung around Jesus, if you hung around him, the real Jesus, not some reconstructed version, not somebody who wrote an autobiography, kind of a sketch of Jesus and presented their own views, not what common culture is telling us that Jesus may have been like, whether that common culture was 200 years ago or it's today. If you hung around the real Jesus, you would have bumped into this feature. When he gets to the end of his life here and he prays to the Father, he highlights, I gave them your words. That's what I did. I gave them your words. So when he does that, he puts other things in a shadow. There are other words out there that I did not give them. There are words here, and Jesus highlights these words, and what we'll see today highlights them again throughout Scripture. There are words, and there are boundaries around these words. There are words that Jesus would say are right words, and therefore there are words that are wrong words. They are not interchangeable words. There's not like, hey, I just, you know, I gave them whatever words. You know, whatever came to mind, whatever their moment was, whatever they wanted to talk about, that's what I gave them, Father. No, no, Father, I gave them your words. I gave them a narrow set of words. There were all kinds of words available. I gave them these words, and only your words is what I gave them. How limited is this? How narrow is this? He's only validating the words that came from the Father. In that moment, do you lose the other Jesus in that moment? Wait, wait. So if he's saying only these words are ultimate words and ultimately matter and they're going to have some weight to them and they're going to accomplish something and there's going to be a consequence for those who don't receive these words, does that make you now say, oh, you know, he was number one on the list until you said all that? I don't know if you can say that kind of stuff and still be the number one most loving, sympathetic, caring, kind compassionate human being who ever lived. Do you feel that way? 
Now, listen, what I know most of us do, and at least our culture does this, is it separates these two versions of Jesus. You've got doctrinal Jesus who feels very narrow and says very exclusive things. Remember, we said this, I think, two weeks ago. Uh, No man comes to the Father but by me. I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one's coming to the Father but by me. So when you encounter that Jesus, does it make you demote him? No, that doesn't sound loving. That's not fair to other people. That's not, what if other people don't agree with that? Other people need to be treated with it. You need to respect other people. Jesus, you're just going down the list here. This is the same Jesus. You and I don't get to separate him. This is, can I just say this without, I'm running the risk of insulting whoever's watching right now. You cannot describe Jesus if you've never read his words. How can I say that with a little bit more teeth? It is an exercise of heightened ignorance to speak on behalf of Jesus when you've never let him speak on behalf of himself. To be a person who runs around with the idea that oh, I could never believe in a God like that. Uh, what's making you say that? And where are you getting your information from to draw a conclusion? Can you, can you just let Jesus speak for himself? Could he be the most loving, compassionate, sympathetic, caring, and kind person who ever walked the face of the earth and say these words, but not those? Could he be? Well, he is in the Bible, right? So I want to talk about particular words with particular power. That's the first thing I want to talk about. Particular words with particular power. And I wrote in your outline, words have unique properties and design in God's plan. You'll find that all over the place. Thus, they can never be treated casually or as inconsequential. You can never approach words when God is dealing with words. You can never approach them and say, well, there are substitutes for this. Something else in its place would do fine. It doesn't need to say that. It could say that you can never treat God's words that way. So when you come to the concept of, does it really matter what people believe? Because the words, Jesus says, get received and believed. So before we get to the word believe, there are words. So does it really matter what people believe? I mean, haven't we all bumped into this idea and, and kind of grown comfortable with it that don't, don't most all religions, essentially they teach the same thing, right? I mean, just religion's about being good and, you know, don't do this, do that, try this. Is it possible that no matter how sincere you are in what you believe, what you believe is more important than how sincere you are? Is that confusing? Right, we've, we've taken the concept of words and sincerity and put them on a seesaw, and, and one is going to be more important than the other. So in our world's personal belief and sincerity has become the thing that outweighs everything else. So when you come to a person and say, there are right words and there are wrong words, it, it feels weird. Because our culture has said, well, then, then essentially you're telling somebody they could be wrong. 
and, and they sincerely, personally believe something. So that's what rises up, right? This issue of sincere, personal belief outweighs everything else. But what if that's just a wrong concept? What if somebody had a bad idea when they said, hey, let's make sincerity more important than content? What if that's a mistake? What if the words really matter? And no matter how sincere you are about whatever you believe, you could believe something that's totally wrong and be 100% sincere in believing it. And it doesn't make it right one ounce. These are the words that Jesus gives, right? So when he says, John 17, 8, for I have given them the words you gave me. There, there is content here. There is boundaries here. And they have received them. That little body of words, they've received them, right? So there's specifics. Jesus doesn't say, I gave them the most trendy, popular words that I could think of. I gave them what they felt they needed to hear. No, he says, I gave them your words. And they, it doesn't say this, they received a good bit of them. They agreed with about 50% of them, so we're good. No, I gave them this, they received this. That's what Jesus says here. And then John is going to do something. As a writer of the gospel and you travel with him, he interacts with words. Not only say uniquely, but he highlights them in, in some significant ways. So I want to say John presents a specific and defined set of words that have unique power. And I just want to highlight this concept here. And if nothing else, the biblical presentation of it rescues us from treating these words like they're negotiable. What if I'm about to tell you about words that have unique power to do something in your life that nothing else can do? Only these words from the Father can do something, some things in your life nothing else can do. So if you jettison these words, you jettison what they can do in your life. Are you with me? Because that's how John's going to describe this. And John begins the gospel of John featuring the word. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning and all things came into creation through him. So John has this appreciation that words are something. They're strategic. Now, let me just rescue that word from the hyper-faith uh, health and prosperity movement uh, has, has done a disservice to this. It is, I have given them your words. Why did these words have power? Because they were your words. That's why they had power. They didn't have power just because they were words. You understand the difference? If you've been under bad teaching, you don't understand the difference. You think that, hey, whatever comes out of your mouth has power. So be careful what you say, because that's got power. Now, somebody taught you that words have power. Jesus didn't just say, I just gave them words. I gave them your words, and they accomplished miraculous things when they touched their lives. Because they were your words. There's words all over the place. They don't gain power by just being words. They have to be your words, particular words, in order to have that kind of impact. But John's going to highlight three things. I'm going to fly through these quickly. Uh, he's going to highlight more than this. I'm just grabbing these three. John speaks about particular words and a concept called freedom in the Gospel of John. John chapter 8, verse 31. All right, just... 
few chapters before we get to the prayer in John 17. So, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word. All right, so there's an if there. Everybody pay attention. This loving Jesus just installed an if. That means if not, there's a consequence, right? Just, it's, it's just there. So if you abide in my word, well, what if I don't? Well, then whatever I'm about to say doesn't apply to you. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. So there's a relationship between the words. And now Jesus is going to clarify later that his words are only the words of the father. So we're talking about the same set of words here. So there's words from the father. Jesus calls them his words. And then he equates them with the truth. And he says that in John 17. I have given them the words you gave me. They've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. And then verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word, those words you gave me, your words are truth. So there's a relationship between these particular words that Jesus highlights and this thing called truth. And that's a hard thing to interact with, isn't it? This thing called truth. How many of you guys have ever heard it said, well, hey, dude, all truth is God's truth. You ever heard that phrase? I've heard that phrase more times than I could shake a stick at. And this is usually where I hear it. In the Department of Counseling, Therapy, and Psychology. In the analysis of human behavior, this concept gets pulled in that somebody out there, Freud or whoever, has stared at human behavior and has come up with some ideas. And that gets associated with something called truth. And then we end up with a conversation that sounds like, well, Keith, all truth is God's truth. All right, I'm not going to venture too far into that category just to say that Jesus doesn't sound like he's using that terminology that way. He's not trying to say that every fact is God's fact. He's trying to stand up that there are words that are linked to a concept called truth that have this strange power attached to them. So I don't think the truth he's speaking of is Uh, water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Newton's laws of physics. You shall know the truth, brother, and the truth shall make you free. Haven't you heard that in a movie? It just gets pulled out anywhere. As a matter of fact, almost any time in a a movie line, when you hear somebody say, you shall know the truth, somebody's going to follow it up. It's like a famous phrase. And the truth shall make you free. What the heck are you talking about? So if I know that water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit, can you explain to me the freedom that I'm now experiencing? Because that is true, isn't it? Newton did a pretty good job of discovering the physical laws, that gravitational hold of the earth and why it does what it does. I think, I think that's true. But if I know that, is, there some, is, is that what Jesus was after? If you'll keep, just study science, know these truths, And they will make you free. I don't think Jesus is talking about that. I think what he is describing is something else. 
And maybe there's some overlap here. I'm not going to try and explain the overlap. Maybe there's some things that God has clearly said and that the world has discovered that kind of have a little bit of overlap element to it. But Jesus is saying something profound here. And he is talking about the power to find freedom in a way that nothing else can derive for us. You can't experience John chapter 8's freedom through wars, guns, swords. Although we, we could all say, we would believe the Ukrainians are fighting a just war. Uh, I don't think the truth and that war need to be kind of blended together and come up with something that fits that setting. This is not the freedom being described by civil rights or social justice. The words you gave me, these words, these are truth. This is not the freedom that medicine brings. This is not the freedom that therapy brings. This is not the freedom that science brings. Although they all make very valid contributions to our existence, for which I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I can take a a, uh, Tylenol to kind of reduce the pain. Some of you are staring at me wondering, why do you have a hole in your head? I'm not even going to explain it. I asked the kids to give me a good story, and they gave me a few, an arrow from an Indian, okay? Um, But, you know, pain comes with that. I get to science discovered a way for a pill to affect our body. I'm grateful for all of that. You could sit down with a counselor who doesn't know Jesus from a man in the moon and he could tell you, stop speaking to your wife that way because this is the impact it's having on her. He doesn't even have to know Jesus to tell you that and you could actually appropriate that and use it and it would benefit your life. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. I think he's tapping into the fact that, hey, big picture reality of what God has communicated, that he is God and he created everything and that everything is touched by his purpose and informed by him. And then this fall thing happened and it rewired the whole universe. But God overcomes that through the work and person of his son and he will resurrect us and give us a new life and restore his intentions for his creation. I I think the truth is bound up in those revelations and there's a lot that goes into that that's in the Bible. But those things have power, right? And then he's gonna highlight, John's gonna highlight these words in association with another critical need that we might not be paying attention to. Particular words... And darkness, particular words and judgment, right? Just a few chapters earlier in John, John says, chapter 12, verse 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Can I, all right, don't detach the word belief. The word belief is never disconnected from words. That's what you believe. You believe in me. All right, who are you? Well, I'm going to need some words to tell you I'm the son of God. I have all power. I created everything. Right? You need those words to believe. You just don't believe in Jesus because Jesus doesn't have a definition until you get some words. Right? So there's words here. Whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. What happens to those who choose not to believe his words? Well, they do remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save 
the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him. Again, I hope Jesus isn't falling off your other list right now, is he? Boy, he was loving right up until the moment he said that. Maybe loving us is a little more complicated than we've let on. Maybe he knows exactly what he's doing. And loving means saying exactly this. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. This isn't any word moment. This isn't a, hey, Jesus, hey, can you just kind of like rift freelance or whatever? Whatever the rappers do. Uh, just say whatever comes to mind, man. No, 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 no. I'm here with a command. Uh, I, he tells me what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. His words, what he commands is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the father has told me. Particular words, right? Not even the son of God is going around just shooting out any kind of an idea. Hey, this has got power. Hey, why don't you believe this? No, no, particular words from the father. And then he relates those particular words to a condition that we may not be paying attention to. The release from darkness. How much do you know about darkness? How much do you, could you explain how darkness touches your life? What it does to you when it touches you? The influence it has in this world? I mean, seriously, if I ask you, hey, write a, write a paper on darkness. A lot of us would say, well, yeah, a little bit about evil and, you know, believe this, believe that. But it's not on our mind a whole lot. What if the Bible described the whole world is in darkness and every human being has to somehow escape the darkness? And then I were to ask you, how are you planning to escape? What would you come up with? Well, I'm going I'm, I'm to do my best and I'm going to live really, really right. And I'm, I'm going to learn, you know, really good morality and I'm going to stay out of the ditch. I'm not going to get around this. I'm not going to get around that. I'm going to do this instead of doing that. I mean, this is my plan to escape darkness. Right, right now, everybody in the room is kind of on board with going, that ain't going to work. Right? You, you, you cannot get out of darkness that way. You have to believe his words. His words have the power to take you out of darkness. And there's judgment in this verse. So I ask you the same set of questions. Have you thought much about judgment? What exactly does judgment mean for you and for me? What's that going to look like? What's building up for that day, that moment? Is it a moment in your understanding? Or are you kind of like living in this idea that, hey, every day of our life is kind of like a little bit of hell on earth. You know, we do bad things, karma kicks in, you get some bad things as a result. You do another bad thing, some more karma kicks in. So it's kind of like this daily disbursement of judgment. Is, is that your concept of judgment? Because that's not what's here. There is a judgment on the last 
day. This judgment hasn't arrived yet. You had a bad day, had a bad week last week? It's not this. It might be something else, but it's not this. There is coming a day when every human being stands before the holy, terrifying power and presence of God. And something of an assessment takes place and a judgment is rendered for every person, no matter what, no matter who you are. And how, how would we deal with that day? Well, if you have believed my words. And if you have not believed my words, my words will stand in that judgment and testify against you. And they will be part of why you experience judgment. These words are powerful, aren't they? And it's one more thing that John presents to us. These particular words and the concept of life, right? We've already heard this a little bit in John chapter 17 where Jesus is highlighted. In this is eternal life, that they know you. Know what? You are the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I think that touches the category of truth right there. That they know you, who you are, what you're like, what you created, and Jesus whom you have sent to redeem us back to what you had ordained. That, that's what's happening here. But then he says in John chapter 20, all right, a little bit later after John chapter 17, it's an interesting sense of design in God's words that gets revealed here. <clears throat> and Jesus, <clears throat> verse 30, Jesus did many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. All right, stop right there. So that means what we have in the Bible is not everything that there is to know, right? Everybody knows that? There's more there's even more about Jesus that you could know that's not written down. There are no words associated with a lot of the things that Jesus did. And God says, listen to what he says here, but these are written. So there's strategy here, right? This is not an accidental book. This is not an accidental collection of words. There are things intentionally left out. And there are things intentionally, words written down, intentionally included, particular words. These are written so that you may believe. They enable belief. They make it possible for belief to not only be reasonable, but possible. Right? None of us, this is God speaking, God who designed us. None of us should adopt this policy that, hey, you know, if God would show up right here and tell me this or write something across the sky or do some pull a rabbit out of a hat trick right in front of me, then I believe in him. Can I just tell you, his words are going to testify you against you on that day. And he's going to pull this out and he's going to say to you, I told you everything you needed to know to believe in me. Did I tell you everything? No, because you didn't need to know everything. But I included Everything you needed to know in order to believe. There's nothing that you don't have if you want to believe. If you don't want to believe, I could write a volume of books. There'd be a hundred Bibles and you would not believe. That's the word of God that will testify against us one day. He says, these, these things, these words are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So follow that there are words, there is belief, and there is life. Where did life come from? It came from the words. 
It doesn't just come from you believing. Oh, I don't need these words. I just am a powerful believer. I'm a person of faith. I'm very spiritual. If you don't have these words, you don't have this life. They're connected to each other. These words reveal something to us and they have power inherent in them to bring about belief in us so that we do have life. So these are not casual words. There aren't any other words available to us. No other particular words can bring life to us. So that's the first particularity I want to point out. Second one is this. These particular words bring about a particular hostility. Jesus doesn't go very far, right? When he says, I have given them your word. Successful. This was my discipleship method. I just took your words, all that you commanded me, what you told me to speak. I only spoke what you spoke. I explained that all to them. I took those words and I gave it to these people. Success. And then the next thing he says out of his mouth is, and the world has hated them. What's up with that? Why? Why? Is there such a hostile response in this world to the words of God? Well, I know we're shocked by that sometimes. If we're biblically informed, we should not be shocked because the same words get told that these words release people from darkness. Well, what if they're not released yet from darkness? Well, then they engage God's words from a perspective of darkness. That's their default setting. And how did man get in this darkness? All right, so can you do a little rewind with me here? Just follow me, because this is, this is super important for how we interact with ideas and how we're aware of our own self when we do that. Right, so let me, let me do this quickly, but there's all these verses are here. You can see them online. You can go through the notes carefully, and I invite you to do that because I, I, I may be saying some things you haven't heard a lot of before. But how does man get in this condition of darkness? Right, let's trace this. Let's start in Acts chapter 26. Jesus is rescuing the apostle Paul and sending him on a mission. By the way, the Apostle Paul is lead guy for church planting, church discipleship. So basically, we're on the same mission that Paul is on. What is told to Paul influences and informs whatever mission we're on. And this is how it's presented to Paul in Acts chapter 26, verse 16. Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus. Remember this encounter with Paul. And he says, rise, stand upon your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose. To appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. You're going to be a witness. Witnesses have words with them. I have revealed some things to you. You're going to reveal those words to others. Verse 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God, all right? So you're sent on this mission, Paul. And by the way, all of us are Paul in this sense. We are sent into a world with particular words. And if you'll bring these particular words, the impact it has on those who receive the words is to open their eyes so that they may be released from darkness into light, from the power of Satan to God. So 
there is clearly here an association between this dark Lord and darkness. This principality, this person of Satan and the darkness that humanity finds themselves in. And that goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? Satan brokered a different deal for humanity. And the moment that deal got said yes to by man, man's mind changed. Man's posture towards God's word, it changed. And man has been in this condition ever since the garden. You and I have the remnants of this condition in us until we are taken to be with him. Right, so you get words all over the place, like 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul tries to explain this. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. But they're folly to him. I mean, they sound ridiculous. A lot of, some of the Bible and the way to do it just sounds ridiculous. Something in us greets the wisdom of the God of all ages with, oh, that's stupid. And he is not able, not able to understand them. Because they're spiritually discerned. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord. This is Paul speaking to Christians. That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Well, how do they walk? Well, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. Because they're alienated from the life of God. Hold on to those concepts, right? When we get back to the garden, you're going to see where this all originated. Romans 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh, and when when one is not born of the Spirit, and the Spirit is connected to us and dwelling in us, it is the only mindset available to you. So the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot It's hostile to God. So it makes perfect sense. I gave them your word and the world hated them. Make sense? Yeah, because their minds are hostile. Let me take us back to the garden for a minute. In the garden, we come in contact with what I'm going to call two ways of knowing anything. There's two ways to know anything. We don't know how long Adam and Eve existed before they ate of the tree. We just know that they did. And then there was this tree episode. And then there's the other side of it where the Bible spends most of its time. So was it five minutes? Was it five decades? Was it 5,000 years? Was it 100,000 years? I don't know. But there was this existence where Adam and Eve interacted with life, with each other. They, They understood some things, right? You got Adam naming things. You got Adam recognizing none of these are suitable for me. He knows stuff. He interacts with her. She's explained as being this unique connection to you. I've created. There's lot. They're not blank zombies staring at stuff like robots and they don't know anything. They know things. How do they know stuff? Because the devil's going to come along and say, you don't really know yet because you didn't eat of the tree yet. But they do know, don't they? But I'm going to say this. This is one way of knowing. They know through God. The world around them, everything that exists, everything that God has labeled is being interpreted, filtered, if you will, through God to them. So they see the world through God's influence as they stare at everything. He's mixed in it. 
And he's revealing and he's touching it and he's letting it gain understanding in their minds in a certain way. And then the devil comes along and offers them a different deal. Basically, hey, you know you guys can know stuff without God, right? You do know that, huh? If you eat of this tree, you can, you can unplug from God. This is the invitation. You can gain knowledge apart from him. You can filter your own information. So there's two ways to know here, right? And Jesus is even going to highlight this, even in John, even on the night that he was with his disciples, right? John chapter 16, Jesus is highlighting the return of the spirit, the one who narrates the creation of God to his people. And he says this, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth, right? Particular words, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, even the Holy Spirit. Can can we rescue ourselves from the hyper-foolish idea that there's some philosopher, some scientist, some respected influencer on the internet who's got some unique insight for us? Listen, the Son of God came to the earth and he said, I only say what the Father says. The Holy Spirit's coming, and what is he going to do? He only is going to, he's not going to speak on his own. He's not going to have an idea. He's just going to reveal particular words that the Father gives him. Whatever he hears, he will speak. Particular words. And Jesus says, you know what? You can't get this right now. But when he comes, like, he's going to take you back to a version of what they had in the garden. He's going to lead you into the truth. He's going to interact with these knowledgeable things, and he's going to help you understand them. Two different things, right? Remember, go back to this quick visit of this exchange moment, Genesis 3, verse 4. The serpent said to them, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You're going to still know stuff. You're just not going to have to depend on him to understand it. You get to understand it. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then, sure enough, in one sense, the devil wasn't lying, was he? Their eyes were both opened and they knew. Now watch what they do with what they know. That they were naked. Did, did they forget to get dressed in the morning that day? Were they naked before? Yeah. But it wasn't a problem. Did they know they were naked before? Yeah. It just wasn't a problem. Now, it's a problem. Can anybody explain why nakedness is a problem? Because, you know, two seconds ago, it wasn't a problem. But they ate and they gained independent knowledge now. And they don't know what to do with it. And nakedness is a problem. They were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths. Right now, ingenuity has taken over. Invention. Right? Nobody has ever seen fig leaf clothing before. Right? This is like before Nike and before anybody. Clothing labels. Eddie Bauer would have been jealous. The fig leaf label has borne and clothes are being made and particular body parts are being covered by the clothes. 
Verse 9, but the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? They have just gained knowledge and they're not in the same place that they once were. And suddenly, nakedness is a terrible problem. Right? Genesis 2 verse 25, before this fall, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They existed with the knowledge. I don't think they were like, oh my gosh, you don't have any clothes on. I don't think that's what this felt like. They knew they didn't have any clothes on. They knew before. The Bible says it. They were naked and they were not ashamed. They didn't greet that information with panic, with weirdness. It was fine. Because it was filtered and understood through the Holy Spirit. Making this real to them. It wasn't a problem. But now they're on the other side of the tree. Now they're in Ephesians chapter 4. They're walking like Gentiles. They're... There's futility in their minds and their understanding has become darkened and they are alienated from the presence of God and they are interacting with information. And it doesn't feel good. Not only are they freaked out by the nakedness, which by the way, God ordains, right? I know we're in a weird world today, but can, can you just go with the fact that originally God ordained nakedness? That was his idea. And he said everything was good. So being naked together was good. It's just not good today, is it? Suddenly, God is a hostile force in their presence. Just moments before, everything between them and God is cool. Now, the second they get this knowledge and they process it on their own, God is to be hidden from. God is not for us. God is against us. Their understanding of God has morphed through them processing it on their own now. So where are you? Well, we hid from you because we were afraid of you. What did God ever do to make them afraid of him? Well, God didn't need to do anything. They just needed to try and conceptualize God with a darkened mind. That's all they needed. Their darkness caused them to see God in a hostile, adversarial way. We need to hide from God. Why didn't they run to God? Why did they say, God, we're in over our heads. We did something stupid. Could you just fix this? There's something about God in this fallen condition that the tendency is to run from him, not to run to him. And that's what they do. So these are, these are particular words that Jesus highlights. And they are particularly, I'm going to say, uncomfortable Words. There's something about us that makes his words uncomfortable to us. I wrote this in your outline. Why does the world respond antagonistically to the gospel? Because the fallen mind perceives God as a hostile force. The gospel doesn't sound like good news to the fallen, darkened mind. It sounds like something to hide from, to run from. This is the condition that's got to be overcome. I wrote in your outline as well, the world is going to hide from God's words. They're going to say, don't give me those words. Give me some fig leaf words that cover my issues. 
You understand? It didn't make sense to them to run to God. It made sense to them to use their own knowledge to invent their own solution. Fig leaf solutions. You, you and I live in a world that is publishing chronically fig leaf solutions. Man is aware. I feel weird. I just got this weird thing, man. The nakedness, the, the stuff of life, just it weirds me out. Hey, what fig leaf did you get? What, what fig leaf do you have? Like, hey, that's a cool fig leaf right there. That probably solves more than one of my problems. Fig leaf solutions, right? That's what's available to us in the world. Fig leaf solutions for things that God said weren't a problem. God didn't say nakedness was a problem. The darkened mind thinks it's a problem. So uh, we live in a world today that, that there is so much disorientation about sexuality, isn't there? Just take it in whatever category you want to go into. Sexual attraction, sexual expression, sexual identity, gender identity, just in whatever category you want to go into. And, and can we just recognize in the moment where the, the, the shame kicks in, the awkward feel of, I, I, I don't like something about me. I don't know how to feel about something about me. I don't know how you're looking at me and I don't know how to feel about that. I'm just disoriented. I'm kind of freaked out and weirded out and I'm pulling it into a sexual category and, and it's living in that terrain and, and I'm looking for fig leaves. Right? Can you recognize that when God created them, he created them naked? But then nakedness became a problem. When you stop having it filtered through God. He created them male and female, but male and female becomes a problem when you stop having that filtered through God and it comes through the tree instead, right? Uh, sexual expression, God created that. Just like nakedness was not a bad thing, sex was not a bad thing. Can I just say this as awkwardly as possible? When God said it is good, Adam and Eve were having some good sex. I mean, it was really, really good. I don't know if they high-fived afterwards, you know, did some kind of celebratory dance, threw a football down on the ground, whatever. I mean, this was, this was awesome. Strangely, it became a source of worship to God. I mean, this is unbelievable. Hey, you got a song? Let's, let's sing to God right now. I mean, sex was incredible. Until they ate from the tree. And then it got really weird. And it got weird for every generation after that, all the way to our day. Listen, the problem isn't with sex. It, it, it isn't with your gender. The problem is we can't escape darkness without God's words. And we're just confused. Look, can I, can I just encourage us a little bit in this. Can I, can I awaken some sense of sympathy and compassion for people as well? Isn't it humbling to recognize the only reason why I can stand up here and explain that to you at all is because of these words? They're not my words. I'm too stupid to come up with anything. These words told me how I got darkened and how life became so confusing. So maybe somebody over here has got this really confusing thing going on in gender. And, and I don't have that confusion, but I got other confusion. I, I'm on the other side of the tree. 
I'm processing life and it's confusing to me. And whatever made them hide, I got my own version of hiding. I, I don't want to be exposed in certain ways. I'm not comfortable with certain things. There's something about you and the way you do that makes me feel, ah, and it brings out the worst in me. And I respond to you in a certain way because I don't know what to do with that. There's something, I don't know about my own identity and I can't, I'm not comfortable with me. Do you guys remember when you were old enough to start noticing how big your ears were? And whether your nose was okay? I mean, I had to fight with my parents to let me grow my hair over my ears. Because, you know, as a little boy, you grow up and your hair is cut kind of like the way it is now. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I have like elephant ears. Like these are the hugest ears ever. It's like you don't know what to do with your ears. It's like, oh, I'm on the other side of the tree. I don't know what the heck are these things. Oh, my gosh, they're horrible. Everybody's staring at them. I, I can't go to school this way. You know, and then it became, I can't go to school with these shoes on. You kidding me? I got to have different brand name on it. I mean, just all of life becomes this disorienting misery kind of experience. Can we have a little bit of sympathy for all the teenagers among us? It's hard to become self-conscious. You know, you're not super self-conscious at five and six and seven. That's why your kids just love you, don't they? When they're five, six, seven, eight, nine, you know? You're their hero and they just want to be around you constantly. And then suddenly it's like they eat of the tree at like 11 or 12. (laughs) And now you're walking through the house going, where are you? And they're like nowhere to be found, trapped inside a device. And they're kind of like going, I heard you coming. So so I hid. Uh, All right. All right. All right. right, How many of you guys are just totally bugged by that? Right. I'm like, you know, you used to be cute. Can I trade you in for a dog or something? It's like, we just used to hang out. You laughed at everything I thought. Now you grunt and say two words and and I don't even see you anymore. Uh, What happened there? Knowledge came on the other side of the tree and it weirded them out. Stop being offended by that. Stop thinking it's about you. You know, do you think God went off in the Trinity and the council of heaven and said, oh my gosh, did you see? They don't even act like they know us. Oh my, what the heck? I am so offended. No, I'm not going to talk to them. They could come to me. I'm not going to talk. I'm God, for instance. You know, that's not God's response. Can we stop responding that way? Can we stop being stupid Christians? He was like, oh, I didn't know Genesis 3 happened. Oh, oh, of course you're weird. Yeah, explains everything. Shame, weirdness, don't know what to do with that. Yeah, me too, me too. Something's got to happen to help us. And there are these words revealed by the Holy Spirit. That's the ministry Jesus brought to the earth. And they're the only words we've got, right? We don't need another set of words because there's no set of words that can do what these words do. We need these words, right? I won't read this whole passage to you, but you go back and look at it. In John chapter six, Jesus has a moment where he's unpacking words and it freaks everybody out, right? Remember this moment? He's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. So you got all these followers with Jesus and they're kind of finally like, whoa, 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 time out. This is getting really weird now. It was weird before. But his words are getting really weird now, right? When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is weird. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, even those kind of followers, like, man, oh, I don't know what to think of these words. This is weird. He said to them, 
Do you take offense at this? Do you, are you hostile toward these words? Is your response, get that away from me? Where's the fig leaves? Can I hide behind that tree from what you just said? Right, that's what they're doing. Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? Can I just explain something to you about knowing things? It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. You guys keep trying to understand this stuff through the tree. You're never going to get it. You're going to need the spirit. That's why Jesus comes right out and says, hey, you can't get some of what I'm saying to you right now until the spirit of truth shows up and kind of takes you by the hand and leads you in it. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. These words made known by the Holy Spirit are unique words. They are particular words. There are no other words like them in this universe. They are spirit and life. But there's some of you who do not believe. And you remember, we conclude that, that thought. I don't know where Seth is. Seth, you can come back up. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, okay, everybody's weird now. They're hearing my word. They're responding hostily. This feels weird to them and they want to leave. And he sits with his closest disciples and he says, do you guys want to leave too? And their response is one of the most profound things any of them ever says in the New Testament. Jesus, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You have brought us particular words that we cannot find anywhere else. They may feel weird to us. We may not be able to explain them all. But there's not another set of words that can do what you're telling us. So no, we're not going anywhere. All right, let me, let me close with this thought. All right, so you guys are watching. You may or may not attend church here, but you attend church somewhere. So my question to whether you're watching, whether you're here is, uh, why'd you decide to come here? Why are you in this church? Why are you in whatever church you go to? A lot of people choose church because uh, a friend invited them, a family member. You may be here because your family goes to church or wherever you go to church. So, you know, friendship and family, well, those, aren't, those aren't bad reasons, but you're in a place where you know people and there's a sense of friendship and you enjoy being around them. But, but my question to you is, where are the particular words in that setting, right? You may be in a church where there is excellent music. I mean, just the, the worship leading, the, the music is stunned at such an amazing level. When we went there, it's, it's incredible. And let me just say, I'm the first person you stand in line behind me. I believe this should be done excellently. I think the very best of musicians who are available should be up here playing. Just I think people who are speaking should be do, the best among us should be helping us see things in God's word. So this is not a knock on excellent music. It's not like, hey, let's dumb this thing down, make it as rancid as possible and just all enjoy it. No, I don't think that's biblical. But if your choice of why you're here is about, man, just love the music. My question to you is where are the particular words in that setting, in that church? Maybe it's convenient. Uh, for, you know, this is a the church that's close by. It's about 10 minutes away, so it works for us. 
Uh, you know, I chose the church because, I mean, the service isn't too long. You didn't choose this church for that reason. But, you know, if you're, if you're watching by live stream, you, you just, you've, you've been fast forwarding through the service up to this moment. Uh, but, you know, I, we get in, we get out, we got a lot going on. Okay, all right, question, where are the particular words in that church? They may be there. Are they there? Do they stick out? Are they, are they magnified and looked at carefully and considered? Oh, we're in this church because, man, the, the, the church's got a cool children's ministry. Uh, you have any idea what it was like? My kids hated going to church, man. We couldn't get them in the car. They revolted against us. And then we started coming to church here, and they love the youth group. Oh, they, they finally love coming to church. All right, listen, I get that. I raised seven kids. I, I get what it's like. Uh, my kids like in a place is not the reason I should be here. The particular words is the reason I should be here or somewhere else. And those particular words are our responsibility to, to dwell with them as a community, to imbibe them, to let them shape us, to let them run in our veins, to smell like these words, to transfer these words, to be able to stand in an hour of prayer at the end of our lives like Jesus and say, Father, I gave them, my kids, my wife, people around me, people at work, people that sat in the pew next to me, people in my small room, I gave them your words. That's what I gave them. Because first, I knew your words. And I knew the power and the impact that they could have. They could bring freedom. They could release them from darkness. They could impart life to them. They could prepare them for the day of judgment. There aren't any words like these words. That's why we're here. We're here because of these particular words. They don't slip into the background. Those other things are important, by the way. I would want all those things where I'm going. Maybe not the convenience thing, but everything else, yeah. Drive across town. Drive for an hour. I met, I met people in Mexico who walked for four and five and six hours to get to a church on a Sunday. Because these words matter. There's no substitutes. They are particular words, particularly powerful and particularly needed in our lives. Let's stand up together. Jesus, you, you married together particular words and the ministry of the spirit of truth. So Lord, we know that's not one or the other. They are joined together. We have listened to your description of particular words. We need the ministry of the spirit. Lead us into these words. But I don't want to assume that here with us are those watching that everybody here has escaped the darkness. Or perhaps some here this morning are watching have not yet escaped the darkness. But Jesus is telling you this morning that his words, if you believe them, they will take you out of darkness. They will bring a freedom into your life like no other freedom that you've ever experienced. In this is life. You must believe this. You must believe in the one true God and in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. This is the very cornerstone of all truth. 
You must believe that you have been created by a God who one day will summon you back before him in judgment. And that's going to be necessary because this world rejected him and fell into darkness and into the power of an adversary who's messing with your world every day. But you can escape his power and you can escape the darkness that's in this world if you will look to Jesus Christ, the only one who has power over darkness and power over Satan. There's no other belief. There's no other religion. Jesus Christ alone can rescue you from darkness. This morning, you can turn to him in faith. You can put your hope and your faith and your trust in him. You can tell him, Jesus, I do believe in you. I receive your words. I don't reject your words. I've been hiding from your words for years. This morning, I don't reject your words. I receive your words. You came to save me. You came to bring me back to the Father, to forgive my sins. This morning, I believe that, Jesus. I believe that. And I want to receive your life back in my life. Would you come? Would you come take up your place in me? Would you give me your spirit and give me your life? From this day forward, no matter what else I've ever believed, Lord Jesus, this morning, I, I believe in you. I receive you in my life. Oh, Lord. For many of us who've prayed that prayer perhaps years ago, we find ourselves living in a world that's selling us one fig leaf after another. One fig leaf after another. Lord, in the moment we get weirded out by something, something happened to us. Something hurt us. Some past incident, some abuse, some interaction with people, some conflict, some rejection. Something that we don't know what to do with. And we stare at it through the tree of knowledge and and we're full of fear. And we're hiding and Lord, we're hostile towards you. Your solutions we don't want. Lord, we're, we're reading books and chasing ideas, getting educated, doing everything. One fig leaf after another. God, some of us have tried on dozens of fig leaves to fix what feels so weird on the inside of us. Lord, this morning, would you awaken a reality? Fig leaves don't fix us. They cover up our misunderstandings. We need your words, Lord, by the Holy Spirit. We need your words. God, I I pray for women in this room who need your words to recover from something horrible that happened to them. And they are hiding and covering and feel shameful. Lord, I pray for guilty sinners in this room who have inflicted that sort of thing on another person. And the guilt of that, they have said too many times, you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea what I've done. Lord, they are in this room this morning. They are watching. They are crushed under the weight and they have tried to find some fig leaf to cover it. But Lord, the result has been they're just hiding from you. God, only you can help them see correctly. Only you, Lord, can give them sight. Lord, I I pray hope would enter this room for some who have just been 
harmed by and haunted by their past. That you would engage them this morning. You would tell them. You would make it real to them. They can have hope because you can lead them to see differently. The spirit of truth can lead them into your words. And your words bring freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. God, I pray for freedom for those who have been bound by what they saw when they stared through the tree of knowledge at their lives. You'd open their hearts and their minds. Lord, would you help us as a church, Lord? God, we live in this world and we have a ministry into this world to people who are in darkness. God, can we stop telling them they're idiots because they're in darkness? God, can we recognize they need your words and the ministry of the Spirit or they will never see? Can we stop being frustrated by blind people who don't see? And by darkness, that's very prevalent. And by those who have yet to escape from the power of Satan. Can you do something in us that says, go tell them what they need to hear? Go give them words that are alive by the Holy Spirit so that they can see and they can find freedom and joy and be healed. Well, that's the ministry you gave to Paul. It's the ministry you give to us. Father, I thank you. What an education this prayer is. Lord, it opens our eyes to such big realities. Lord Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness to transfer the Father's words to your disciples. We live in the good of that to this moment. For your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, if, if you are here this morning and maybe your fig leaf solutions have just discouraged you to a point, you just need some prayer to help God get you to a different place. Why don't you come find a prayer team member and just come let them agree with you and, and let God meet you in this hour and launch you in a bit of a new direction. The rest of you guys, we love you. You guys watching, we love you. And we hope to see you soon. We'll see you guys next week.